0: This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse, learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hello everyone, this is a special three-part episode recorded aboard a climate and oceans expedition in the Norwegian Arctic. We're going to hear about the dark mysteries of the deepest realms of the ocean from her deepness herself, Dr. Sylvia Earle, and then we will hear from Taylor Griffith, her grandson, on the role of ocean storytelling and communication, concluding after that with some pretty awesome, if somewhat humbling science, speaking to the latest on the planetary boundaries from the leading scientist who created the framework itself, Johan Rockstrom. Ahead of aforementioned expedition, I was doing some homework and looked at my bookshelf and decided to reread one of my favorite novels of all time, the book Arctic Dreams, from the philosopher and naturalist Barry Lopez. Please do me a favor if you have not read any Barry Lopez, you can't go wrong, just read his books. And so in this novel, Arctic Dreams, there are these lines that just grip my imagination. He says, in the Arctic, there is a blue-black vault of the winter sky, a cold beauty alive with scintillating stars, the moaning and wailing in the winter sea ice as the ocean's crust warps and shatters in the crystalline air. Barry describes the Arctic as a region like the desert, rich with metaphor and with adumbration, a landscape of numinous events a world of moonlit ice where airplanes track icebergs the size of cleveland and polar bears fly down out of the stars ah oh, his language is such poetry and so reading this and landing in the arctic today the contrast is quite stark because today this very same arctic has become ground zero for climate collapse it's warming three times faster than anywhere else on Earth. And the disintegration of the Arctic directly affects ocean currents from the Atlantic all the way down to the Antarctic. And so here I was, Barry's tattered book tucked away in my backpack, amongst scattered islands, traditional fishing villages, aquaculture pens, beautiful jagged peaks around which the clouds curved like white leopard paws. And we were convening with a group of ocean lovers and oceanographers, CEOs, investors, educators, entrepreneurs, politicians, artists, mothers, fathers, and most importantly, caring citizens of the earth. As I mentioned earlier, Sylvia Earle, who is possibly the most admired and loved oceanographer of the last century, was in our midst. She is a formidable elder who has done more to illuminate the dark and secret life worlds of the deep ocean than any other human alive or dead, infatigable at 86 years old, tenacious in her determination to protect the oceans. Sylvia was with us, diving, leading our science sessions, pumping her arms into the air every time she wanted to emote a particular point, which, by the way, had us coin a group anthem where we would at once go, okay, everyone, do the Sylvia arms. Her presence and tone channel such a rare blend of force worn smooth by love reminding us that the oceans are both a physical realm and a terrain of the human heart. In our episode today, Sylvia describes the experience of being the first witness to life that no one had ever seen before in the very first dives that she took down to the world's last unexplored frontiers, the deep ocean. She tells us about the life worlds that you can find there, life worlds that are bound and dictated by chemoreception, sound, and bioluminescence. It is an entirely different life world to be an inhabitant and denizen of the deep sea. Can you imagine that before the 20th century, no one had even been able to go down a thousand meters, let alone come back? And now, as Sylvia points out, we are 21st century human beings who have the incredible chance to know and see the earth as one in all of this depth and complexity. Sylvia spins tales of groupers and eels that form unlikely friendships, and she tells us why it is that she can see a personality, a life, and a dignity when she looks at a fish, when other people might just see something to extract or something to eat. As Sylvia keeps reminding us, the oceans are suffering. They've absorbed 90% of the heat of our civilization that's flung out of orbit, and the oceans are a dumping ground for oil spills, fishnets, and plastics, which is kind of like another very slow oil spill. PFAs and forever chemicals. The ocean is an ecosystem of ungoverned commons, where dark fleets and competing nations troll the seafloor and scoop out abhorrent amounts of sea life before it barely has had a chance to live. And this is why Sylvia's Foundation has started a global project of connected hope spots, to give people the opportunity to care for the places they love. And she's also started an ocean exploration company of submersible vehicles to bring thousands more into the wonders of the deep. Her grandson, Taylor, is an awesome fellow and an exceptionally talented ocean photographer. He is also a multimedia artist, and he uses his craft to tell stories on behalf of the ocean. After we hear from Sylvia, Taylor is going to tell us how kelp forests can unite the world And the major challenges that we face with ghost nets that are by far and large the greatest amount of plastic pollution in the ocean. And another threat, the mining of the deep ocean, and how this may be the last Jenga block that could tip the whole tower down. Finally, we will hear from Johan Rockstrom, who was our expedition lead in the Arctic, along with my friend Keith Tuffley. Shout out to Keith. Johan is, as I mentioned earlier, a world famous climate scientist. Who brought us the Great and Only Planetary Boundaries Framework, which has been influencing governments and countries the world over to think differently about our impact on the planet. On our trip, he presented the latest science of the boundaries. Sneak preview, we've crossed six out of nine of them. And in this episode, we'll hear about how he thinks about complexity and mapping the interdependencies of our planet. Quick note for those who haven't come across the boundaries, These are not loose climate targets, they are not nice-to-haves. They are geophysical limits set by the Earth itself, thresholds beyond which the Earth as we know it begins to spiral out of recognition. When boundaries are breached, we will begin to experience cascading tipping points, moments where critical ecosystems flip into new states. More on that in the show notes. And so as we move into the episode now, dear listener, I will leave you with these words from Sylvia. There is nobody else on the planet like you. What is it that makes you you? What are you going to do that you alone in all of history can do? Look in the mirror and figure it out, kid, because you have power. We can take as many hearts as minds as we want to join in the chorus. It's an infinite orchestra and the world needs voices. The ocean needs your voice. So let's learn about the oceans from some people who love and protect it best. Onto the show. So, Sylvia, good morning. Good morning. So, we're here on an oceans and climate expedition. And the idea is what can this brilliant and very diverse group of minds do about the planet and specifically the oceans? There's something you've said pretty much every day since we've been here that's been resounding in my head and I think the head of many of us. And it's a phrase that brings a lot of sadness to my heart because you say people don't know why they should care, right? And said differently, we can't care if we don't know. And you are probably one of the world's leading examples of a human being that has spent a lifetime getting people to know, getting people to care, Spreading the voices of those that are invisible to us, whose faces we just see as meat, who are individuals with characters and personalities underwater that we just see a dollar sign on. And in uh, your presentation the other night, y- you said, you know, us scientists, it's it's challenging because we, we're having to do this translation. I go down and I come back up and I have to translate what I see. And we have to communicate this as as scientists. But what if just everyone could get down there and see what I saw, right? And so to start off, my first question for you would be, can you describe from the perspective of these underwater creatures, the life world and the space that they inhabit, what's it like down there? What would you see? if you are one of these spiraling shapes that you showed us or one of these tiny bacterium on the ocean floor, what is it like down there, this deep invisible part of the world that is the last unexplored frontier?
1: Well, first, let me put in perspective that first and foremost, I'm a witness to piece of time that is unique in all of human history from the middle of the 20th century when I came along at about the time that technology was evolving to the point where for the first time humans had access to the sea. Humans had for the first time access to the skies above in the perspective that both of these dimensions have given to us as a species that I mean, the birds get high in the sky and fish go deep in the sea and so do dolphins and whales, but we are the creatures with the gift to go where, by nature, we're not equipped to go. And I mean, imagine what a dolphin would think if it could go up in an airplane or if you could take any creature other than just ourselves down where it's dark all of the time. We have the best chance of any human who's ever lived. We 21st century human beings, because of the power that we have, the superpower of knowing what not only elephants and dolphins and whales and birds and any other creature cannot know, but what no human could know before. We can see from afar that Earth is one totally connected system that fires in the Amazon or dust in the deserts of Africa that sweep across the planet or that storms that originate in one part of the world really have an impact globally. That the polar ice is important to everyone, everywhere, all the time. Even if have never seen it or touched it, it really affects all of us. Imagine if we did not know this. We are so fortunate to be at least able to understand that we are inextricably a part of nature and that all of us, whatever we do, wherever we do it, (laughs) our actions count. Whether it's positive or negative, it all adds up to influencing, impacting the nature of the natural systems that make our existence possible. And So here we are, and here I am. With my beginning early before the Anthropocene, as geologists refer to this era where humans have so changed, so altered the nature of nature, that it's dignified with a name that shows that humans have marked the earth, all of it, with a distinctive signature of change. It's as if going back in time, there have been other times when earth is been shocked by at least numerous (laughs) volcanoes that apparently shifted things. When a meteor struck the Earth going back to about 65 million years ago, everything changed fairly quickly, fairly sharply, and, and that's been the human impact. When explorers first began really getting away from their own places on the planet, and exploring by sea in the 14 and 1500s, as humans mark time, there are about half a billion people. By 1800, a billion. When I came along, two billion. By 1980, four billion. And now we're at eight billion. And there has to be a place for all of us, water, food. <laughs> and we displace everybody else to make room for ourselves. And it seems like that's great prosperity on our part, but of course it's not equally distributed. But beyond that, the lack of sensitivity or understanding that as we displace the natural systems, we're putting ourselves increasingly at risk of altering Earth so that it becomes not just less habitable, but uninhabitable. Which is why we're here in Norway on this expedition with some brainy people who've been thinking about these issues for a long time. But when I first began exploring the ocean, nobody thought about these things. You know, Earth was too big to fail, too big to be changed by mere humans. And so we've developed these habits of using the ocean as the ultimate place to put things we don't want near where we live. We allow sewers to flow into the sea. Because it seems like it goes away. And dumping stuff in the ocean, I mean, just by the barge loads, cities are concentrated around coastal areas. And where do you put your trash? You just throw it in the ocean, it goes away. Except now we know it doesn't. What would people eat? Well, throughout our early history and right up to... Even now, taking wildlife from the ocean seems like a logical thing to do, as if it's a never-run-out supply of groceries, except it is running out. Ninety percent of the big fish that we have consumed have been extracted, taken with technologies that did not exist before the Anthropocene. Post-World War II, post-Cold War, when technologies to find, capture, and market to transport globally, creatures taken from one place to take half a world away when they're still in good shape, or refrigeration that did not exist in a commercially viable way to take fish caught in one part of the planet and freeze them sometimes for more than a year so that they could be marketed somewhere else. It's just a different, Way of looking and respecting or not respecting what keeps us alive. So, back to your question. <laughs> Sorry about the diversion there, but no one had been able to go like a thousand meters down and come back before the 20th century. A thousand meters is not that far. It's into and a little bit below the twilight zone where light gives way to darkness. The greatest part of Earth's biosphere where life exists lives in the dark. And it's mostly cold. It's not freezing because, you know, ice is a condition of water that is really unique in that most materials shrink and become heavier as they get colder, even steel, very slightly, but under great pressure and cold. But You think of all the other elements, the trend is most compounds get colder, they get smaller and more intense. But water gets to a certain point and ice expands, becomes lighter, occupies more space. at the bottom of the ocean, if it gets to the point of freezing, as it does in the Arctic and the Antarctic, ice crystals form and they float, they come to the surface. Imagine if ice sank, instead of floating. The conditions in polar regions that are covered with frozen water because it's lighter than the liquid water below. It serves as a kind of a cover and another surface for life to occupy on the underside of ice. Having the privilege of being among the first to be able to go down to that twilight zone and come back, I mean, going down there is really easy. But among the first who were able to do it as scientists, as witnesses, were Otis Barton, the engineer, and William Beebe, the scientist, zoologist, who conspired, collaborated, and built the bathysphere, that little steel sphere with little portholes that made it possible for them to descend to about a 1,000 meters to half a mile beneath the surface to look out and see life that no one had ever seen before. Did not have cameras to be able to take photographs, but they did drag nets in the area and bring specimens back that they were able to use those dead animals to portray in a way with paintings what they looked like when they were alive. So lantern fish anglerfish, creatures that no one had ever really seen before except dead. And they were the first witnesses of life as it actually occurs. And the bioluminescence, the flash, the sparkle, the glow of living creatures, that firefly kind of light that is so common in the ocean. If you've ever dived at night or been swimming at night, you're very likely were exposed to seeing bioluminescence. But It's maybe, according to Edith Witter, who's a specialist in bioluminescence, this may be one of the most common forms of communication on the planet, maybe the most common form, because the largest biosphere on Earth, the ocean, 97% of Earth's water is ocean, and every drop is likely to have something alive in it, certainly bacteria, the little tiny things that we've only discovered in relatively recent times because we did not have the technology that made it possible for us to see these ultra-small living creatures. One of them, Prochlorococcus, a blue-green bacterium, was not discovered until 1986. Now we know that it generates about 20% of the oxygen in the atmosphere as well as infusing the ocean with oxygen in the process of creating food, photosynthesis. And what else don't we know? What else is out there, down there? Well, the greatest era of ocean exploration is just really beginning. I really feel so privileged to be a witness of an ocean, of a world that is really a different world than what we now have. I, I tell people, and they laugh and say, well, we know you come from a different planet. And I say, yes planet i originated on does not exist anymore we have a new planet it's the anthropocene era epic of earth history and we cannot go back but we can make earth more habitable than it is today it's becoming less so i mean johann rockström one of the scientists who's with us on this expedition, who has really articulated with a team of colleagues about the planetary boundaries, how much at risk we have now put ourselves in. I think it's our complacency, our arrogance in part, our lack of understanding, our lack of respect for the natural systems that maintain Earth as a habitable planet. But knowing is the key, now that we know and can see that we have come perilously close to irreversible tipping points, tipping in the wrong direction. But with knowledge, we can tip in the right direction. We can recover, not everything that's been lost, but cure some of the harm armed with knowledge. We kind of know what to do. We know we should be keeping coal, oil, and gas in the ground to keep trees alive. I mean, old-growth trees, trees that have taken even a few hundred, let alone a few thousand years to grow, they should be regarded as sacred, vital for our existence, keeping the big old fish, coral reefs, deep-sea systems, these intact systems, wherever they are, embrace them as if your life depends on it, because actually, our collective lives depend on maintaining what makes Earth habitable. And so I'm an optimist. I think we can do this. And as a witness, to be able to share the view, I think is a privilege. I mean, I'm a scientist. First and foremost, if I could, I'd spend basically all of my my time that I have available, that I have a choice to spend, actually getting out and really doing what I love to do, explore, document, understand, and bring that information back and encourage others to see for themselves. No child left dry. (laughs) Get out there, kid. Get wet. (laughs) And be an explorer. Be a witness. You do what kids naturally do. Ask questions and never stop. And be kind. Be compassionate about other creatures, including other humans. It's natural. It's what we're born with, curiosity and compassion for others. And we have the best chance we'll ever have right now to do just that.
0: One word really came to mind as you were speaking, Sylvia, and it's this idea of humility. The more that we learn through your science, Johann's science, planetary science, the more we are humbled by how the melting in the Arctic affects the Antarctic, that the sands of the Sahara create something in the Amazon. As you said, being alive today is to have the, the opportunity and the capacity to be aware of these intricacies of the earth and how human arrogance tries to pick things apart and take the little parts that we want for our uses in complete ignorance of how it affects the whole. And finally, finally, finally today, and with other guests on the show, we've spoken as to how wait, stop, pause. If this creature exists, it exists, first of all, for its own purposes and life, but it exists to enable a web of other life. And so we can't just selectively cut things apart and the planet is dying as a result by a death of a thousand cuts When it comes to the deep sea, I think someone shared the other day that 90% is unknown, and who knows, it's probably even more, right? We have no clue what's down there and how it regulates, as you said, the chemistry of the rest of the ocean, the chemistry of life, the 20% of our breaths that comes from something that was discovered in the 1980s. And what do you do when you don't know? You go slow, and you go with curiosity. And so one of the things that we've been talking about on this trip And that I encourage everyone here, and I'll put information in the show notes and maybe get someone on the show to talk about this in the future, is this notion of deep sea mining. We think that it's dead down there and dark and quiet and still, and therefore we can go down and grab these little nodules to fuel um, a clean revolution. How ironic, because we don't know all the little guys down there who are regulating the rest of the earth. And so I'd be curious to hear from you, and we'll have your um, grandson come on later who's also working on this. But anyone who's there listening, what should they know about these deep sea interventions that we'll be learning about and how they could take action or at least be more informed so that the ocean isn't just a surface layer thing for them, but they understand the depths of its wisdom and intelligence and the depth of the life that goes on? down there?
1: The knowledge base that is now available across the planet. I mean, when I had a question I wanted to have answered, I went to a library, and I still do. But the library has become increasingly richly populated with information, and it's available not just in books. It's available in a little thing that I carry around in my pocket, It's a cell phone, but it's a little compact computer that connects me with knowledge. And not all that is out there available via the internet is accurate, but that's where you should be as a kid and say, how do you know that? The scientist usually is pretty good at challenging the sources of information. And you peel back the layers and finally get to some answers that somebody did this and therefore we know that. Anybody can do this. Anybody and especially kids can observe carefully and report honestly what they see. That's what scientists do. Always question, always be glad if you find that you were wrong about Mm -hmm. something because you get closer to what you really want to know is what's real. So it was always... Um, frustrating for me as a child, finding that the books didn't have all the answers. But it also was exciting because I could find things that nobody else had discovered yet. And in the ocean, that's so easy to do, because even now, the number of people who have been to a thousand meters is still pretty small, considering how many people even who have been up in the space station. I mean, it's the best time to tap into what is known, to be able to see what nobody could see before, but to realize that the best is coming, the greatest era of exploration, in part, because of the ability to connect the dots, to look at patterns, to see and understand the nature of where we fit in, that we're not just like the big boss of the world. We are utterly, totally dependent on maintaining the integrity of these closely-knit systems that have taken literally billions of years to put into place. And you speak of the arrogance (laughs) that we need humility. We need respect as we go forward because now we know we're on the edge. We could keep doing what we've always been doing, consuming nature, as if it will always be there to back us up, no matter how many things we kill, how many trees we cut, how many tons of fish we take out of the sea. It's going to be fine, right? No, it isn't fine. Even though it may seem, as you sit wherever it is that you are, you can breathe. You're great. They say, problem, what problem? But... Because we now have the capacity to gather data, look at it, and analyze it, see the trends, document the changing nature of ice in polar regions, the changing composition of life on Earth, how many species have been lost just since the beginning of the 20th century, and we're on track to lose at least a million more of the species that we know And have documented, not even counting the ones, especially in the ocean, where we're finding, I mean, so many new creatures every time we go deep in the sea. I'm always shocked if I don't see something or learn something that hasn't been seen or learned before. Going under the surface, even as just a scuba diver, in the skin of the ocean, let alone going really deep in the ocean, because access there is so rare and so new.
0: Sylvia, it's probably a naive question, but I don't think it necessarily has an obvious answer. Why do you see a personality, a life, a dignity when you look at a fish, when other people just see meat or something to extract? Can you explain that difference in psychology? Is it because you spent time with them, explored We're curious. I'm just baffled by our capacity. I don't know if it's denial or something much deeper, but I long for an earth where people see their kin, see their relatives amongst all life. Mm. The sexy ones and the unsexy ones. (laughs) Not just the charismatic megafauna like this eagle that's here in the picture above us, but in a jellyfish and everything, it's sacred. Well, I think it's... Natural in children, not
1: only to be curious, but to be kind. They empathize. It's natural. They want to know, who are you? Because they're learning at such a pace when you're two and three years old, four years, five years old. But very early, the adults around children shape attitudes, shape the ethic of how you regard other humans and certainly other forms of life. If you learn as a child that it's fun to kill a fish, fun to kill a bird, or it's okay without any sensitivity involved, you just have that as what you're taught. And you put aside those natural inclinations of feeling empathy for an earthworm (laughs) or feeling empathy for a dragonfly or an ant or anything And we're taught to be afraid of nature, to be afraid of other humans. If it's not like us, then it's put aside as something that you can treat with a combination of fear and not caring. And it's that otherness that separates us from other humans as well as all other forms of life. But I was lucky as a kid to have parents, especially my mom, who had compassion and empathy, and did not discourage me as a kid from getting acquainted <laughs> with things like caterpillars. And she encouraged it. She had that kid like childlike openness. I mean she was practical. I mean, of course, we like everybody she, have a varied diet at that time. We had a huge garden. This was in New Jersey. We had about 10 acres of land, more than most people have. But in the greater scheme of things, it was just about enough for us to raise most of what we consumed. We did not eat animals that we raised, except chickens. And we didn't eat very many of them because we valued them for producing eggs, and we got to know them. It's hard to have chickens in your life and not realize every single one of them is different. They have personality, just like cats and dogs and humans and things. I mean, chickens, for heaven's sakes. We just have so depersonalized chickens, among other animals, that we just think nothing about who they are. We just, you know, consume them as if they're potatoes or corn. And, oh, by the way, they're alive too. (laughs) We should eat whatever it is with respect and dignity and not just take food for granted. I mean, we're animals. We have to eat something. We don't photosynthesize. (laughs) But we should respect and really celebrate the source of our sustenance and not just... (laughs) think of everything as if it's just there for us to consume no matter what. Anyway, I think that was the beginning. But then in terms of fish, what I learned from the people around me, fish were somehow different. However, I remember that my brother was putting earthworms on a hook to catch little fish in a lake near where we lived. And I just thought it was horrible to take that poor creature, an earthworm, and put a hook through it and then to throw it into the water where it wasn't at home so that you could attract a fish that was minding its own business. And we tricked it into taking a big bite and finding that it had a hook in its mouth. (laughs) It must have been painful. And then to pull this poor quivering creature out of the water... I mean, for me, as a kid's sister, I was horrified. I just didn't know how fish were caught. And I saw that little fish struggling for its life, and I just wanted to put it back in the water and apologize for disturbing his serenity. But, I mean, I had eaten fish before then, but I just didn't know what it was like to be a fish. And I didn't really know, and I still don't know, Nobody can know what it's really like to be a fish. But fast forward to 1970, when I had a chance to live underwater, to spend two weeks at night actually submerged on a coral reef in the Virgin Islands as a part of a team of aquanauts. And already I had been diving. I first started diving in the 1950s. So I'd seen fish on their own terms. And, of course, aquariums capture fish, and you get to see their faces and their behavior. But to see them in their natural environment, to get to know that big moray eel that occupied that place on the reef. And we'd go back day and night, and he'd be hanging out. Sometimes he was out of his little cave, but he always went back to that place. That was his home. And there was a certain grouper. And butterfly fish and surgeon fish, a group of five gray angel fish that slept in different places, but early in the morning, just before dawn, we'd be out on the reef just to see, watch the fish wake up that slept at night. Some are active by day, some are active at night, some are active around the clock like sharks. (laughs) But to watch them emerge from different places, but join together, these five fish, that's different sizes, some were a little bit bigger than others, but they swam together. And during the day, you'd see them here, or there, but always together. And it just hadn't occurred to me that you could get to know fish that knew one another and stuck together, like a little team of <laughs> friends, if you will, to use an anthropomorphic term. But maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just a common habit that we have and that fish have and that cats and dogs and horses have. We know they develop, quotes, friendships among their own species. But here's the thing. (laughs) It's also true, and I found this out subsequently, that the fish that we refer to as grouper or marrow, they're big, curious fish that unfortunately taste good, (laughs) as humans define what tastes good. They develop relationships, partnerships, if you will, with other species of fish. Moray eels and grouper sometimes go fishing together. They actually cruise around. It's a grouper who usually starts it, finds what looks like a good fish that they want to eat. It's a fish fish world out there. It goes over and signals to a moray, that it's time to go fishing and the moray teams up and they cruise around together to the place that the grouper identifies the grouper is large and fat cannot get into the little crevices that the eel long and slim can go in and chase out or capture the desired meal and then they both have lunch together And it's true with grouper and octopus. Octopuses, you know, they can slither into small spaces. But the idea that a grouper finds something they want to get to but can't because they're too big and they go to another fellow resident of the reef and say, let's go hunting together. And they do. But they don't take all of what's there. Like humans tend to go and comprehensively take everything, (laughs) if they can, and just go far beyond what they can use, at least in the 21st century and during the 20th century, too, as technology scaled up to enable us to take entire schools of tuna, entire populations of menhaden or herring or whatever. You can find them in ways that we couldn't find them before using satellite technology, even airplanes to go find where whales are, (laughs) where tuna are, where schools of menhaden or other fish are, and then swoop down and and take them all, because we can. And there's a market for it. And unlike what you see happening in nature, where it is an eat-and-be-eaten world, even the grazers... They don't eliminate the food. If they did, they would be eliminated themselves. I'm not sure whether these are conscious decisions or it's just the way the natural systems have developed. A whole interacting give and take that ultimately results in there's a place for everybody somehow. And only humans come in and take more than can be used. There's no waste in nature Consume and be consumed, the generation of nutrients as what we would call waste, is actually food for somebody else in a closely knit natural system. Humans are unique in terms of generating something that we refer to as waste. (laughs) And the idea that we can take in such a large quantity that we disrupt the rhythms, these natural interactions in in ways that are now threatening the whole planet.
0: And as you say, it's such a, a lack of education. I only learned recently, to my own embarrassment, because my brother supports some of this work, Antoine, if you're listening, the krill in the southern Antarctic oceans and how they are being scooped up by the ton load. I don't even know the numbers. You do. For supplements, for our omega-3 supplements so that we can just feel a little bit healthier. But actually, we should be eating the organic grasses that those krill are eating instead of eating these fish that are whale food. So every time you eat krill or every time you eat salmon, you're eating whale food. And guess what? Those whales need the food because there aren't that many of them left and they're starving. And so as you say, it's a fish-eat-fish world. But there's also a system of give-and-take in nature and we take and take and take And we've become incredibly bad at giving back. I would love to speak about your hope spots um, in a second. But first, two things that happened to me, and I think maybe some of us need these moments to wake us up. I always went fishing with my dad. It was our father-daughter activity, out on the boat in Mexico. And we'd head out every morning. And I started spending more time with the oceans and with the creatures. And I'll never forget, there was one day where he fished a fish out and hits it on the head with the club so that we can take it back for lunch. And I felt a shudder pass through my whole body as if I had been clubbed. And I saw that fish writhing and he put it in the box, but it was still thrashing around. And I was like, dad, can you hit it again? And and I just saw the light go out of its eyes. You know, it's like when Aldo Leopold speaks in um, Sand County Almanac about yeah. the light that leaves the wolf's the wolf. eyes. Yeah. Right? And... I just got shivers, and when he says, "You know, there's something that the wolf knows and the mountain knows that is beyond what I can possibly know," almost brings tears to my eyes because I think that I, I had that that moment with that fish. I could never go fishing with my dad on the boat again. He knows that when I would go with him on the boat, there would be no fishing lines. It would just be our time. And slowly, I stopped eating most fish. I'm not all fish entirely, but a lot because of that moment. And I don't know why. From one day to the next, something was different, but something was. And it was around that time as well that I jumped in the water with a um, a family of humpback whales that swam past. And hmm. I just needed to be in the water with them. And I jumped in with my little snorkel and mask. And I was about 15. And everyone on the boat was like, you're crazy. They have a baby. And I'm like, no, it's fine. And I just dove down. <laughs> and I was sort of un- upside down because I was trying to stay down. I believe, honestly, for the whale, I was probably not important. But I locked eyes with this humpback whale. And it's another moment of seeing, gazing into a truth that is profoundly more ancient than anything you could ever know. And all you can do is bow down and say, I share this with you, this life, this space. And then someone we've also had on the show is Carl Safina, who speaks about animal cultures. I'm sure you know him. And um, this idea that animals have cultures, that animals can have friends, that they can have these sort of interspecies hunting collaborations can seem astounding, and yet why should it be? Because empathy, emotion, care, friendship, home, did not start with humans. We're just exhibiting a characteristic of life as it organizes itself. And so when we take a baby whale and put it in an aquarium, that's like taking a child from a mother. When we separate a grouper from an eel, that eel will no longer have its hunting body. I mean, these are complex relationships that we're breaking apart and these are lives they're not just I don't even know what the word would be and so my hope is that everyone can experience something like I've had the fortune and yourself of having these direct relationships and at breakfast I was speaking with your grandson about the um, exploration vessels doer that you started now your daughter runs and I'd love to hear about the impetus for creating a company, or I don't know what you like to call it, that creates these underwater exploratory vessels that can take ministers of environment to experience and kids and kids, hmm. probably more important in the it's long run. scientists,
1: of course. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so maybe you can speak a little bit about that underwater company, what its intentions are. People who are listening. Some of them do have the resources to support such a thing as well. And so why this kind of underwater vessel? Well, you touched on it
1: in terms of access. You jumped in the water with humpback whales. You're a witness. A thousand years ago, even a hundred years ago, there were no masks and snorkels. Fins, <laughs> even though... Leonardo da Vinci apparently sketched something that is reminiscent of swim fins. It wasn't until pretty far into the 20th century that swim fins, masks, and then scuba really became on the scene that enabled primates, humans, to get to know the dominant biosphere on the planet, the ocean. And... It's the gift of access and especially the gift of time. Part of the reason that I had this transformative way of looking at life in the sea is having an opportunity first in 1970 and then over the years on 10 different occasions to live underwater where you're there day and night and getting to know individuals and getting to see how they relate one to another, how they communicate. Um, And they're not just talking fish. I mean, lobsters, the little coral shrimp that are so-called cleaner shrimp that make a living by cleaning the debris off of other reef residents who stop by, like going to the beauty parlor or to the doctor's office or the dentist's office. They sit there and wait for creatures to come and get, you know, spiffed up a bit. And they tend to mate for life. You see two of these little shrimp, a male and a female, and like some humans, they tend to stick around for the duration of their lives. And it's true with some fish, too. Butterfly fish, in particular, are known to team up for life. It's that sensitivity to being a witness to these relationships. But most of our access to the sea is still, in the 21st century, limited to the first few hundred feet. And the average depth of the ocean is about four plus a bit kilometers. Maximum depth is 11 kilometers. And most of this space is dark. And most of this space is really cold. If you get down below where divers normally go, or even within the space that divers go, you know, Mm -hmm. you experience the surface is warmer, and the deeper you go, the cooler it gets, the darker it gets. And it's such a big idea. Most of life on Earth, most of the biosphere, is inhabited by creatures who live in the dark all of the time. But how do you get there as a a light-loving human being? And we like it kind of warm within a certain range of temperature. And to access the deep sea, we have to package ourselves the way astronauts going high in the sky. We can't get there by our own muscle power. We've got to propel ourselves high in the sky using technology. And you stay typically at one atmosphere, the same pressure that you have at sea level. We can live within a certain range. Mountaintops, you have less pressure than at sea level, but it's within a comfortable range where our existence is habitable. But the deeper you go in the ocean, the greater the pressure, the colder, and it's dark. So to develop a system that enables you to be at one atmosphere and stay warm and to illuminate it with light or with sound because communication with not only bioluminescence, but also (laughs) with sound, these are the two primary forms of, well, plus chemoreception that we have in terms of smell and other subtle ways of sensing through the chemistry of the world around us. But in the ocean, it's a dominant form of communicating. Chemoreception sound and bioluminescent perception of light. And uh, just to be down in a little sphere, I mean, William Beebe and Otis Barton, the scientist-engineer duo that first experienced what it's like to go down a 1,000 meters and look out a little window and see these creatures who live there and be able to report back. And this goes back to the 1930s, uh, late late 20s, early 30s. And then fast forward to where we are today in the 21st century. We're still behind the curve of what it takes to go high in the sky. The investment, the willingness to commit the resources needed to take us where we are not naturally equipped to go. We're just at the edge of this time of really a significant Ability, and I've been right in the thick of it uh, as a scientist working with engineers to try to develop the technologies so that in a selfish way I can go where I otherwise couldn't go, but also to be able to share the view. So I teamed up with engineers starting in 1980 with first one and then a second and now a third enterprise that really is designed to improve our access to the sea. And my daughter and son-in-law have taken over the most recent of these enterprises to try to, since, since you know it's hard to get people just to give you the resources needed, you have to be really creative and figure out, how do we do this? So starting a little company where you have to make enough money to be able to be creative. But it's not like a huge, remotely operated vehicles that can go down to half the ocean's depth, you know, more than half, 6,500 meters. Um, The maximum is about 11,000. So it's where deep-sea mining is now proposed. So one of the few vehicles that can access the area where mining is proposed, was developed, really designed and developed and produced by deep ocean exploration and research. And like individuals, companies can have an ethic. And some companies refuse to do business in ways that are destructive. They're on a course to really support making a difference in a positive ways. And that's what DOER does deep-ocean exploration and and research. You can make a good living by doing good things without being destructive. (laughs) And I hope that more and more companies really take that as a mandate. You don't have to kill things. You don't have to destroy things. You can be creative and somehow make a good living for yourself and for others while taking us to a better place. And and I love it. Yeah, I look all around. There are so many corporations that are just like an extended vision of how do you succeed as a human being in a way that you're really excited about what you're achieving, what you're building, what you're creating. So that's how right now two little submersibles that go to, guess what, a thousand meters <laughs> because that's where the current equipment Materials, an area where a clear sphere can be made of acrylic that can go to that depth safely, tried and true. Submersibles have been made out of these materials since the 1970s and have just a great track record of functioning safely. And by this time next year, there should be these two, three person subs. Who will be deployed in French Polynesia, Tetya Rohe Society, for exploration, for research, to take people, including kids, or CEOs, or ministers, (laughs) you, me, anybody, down to the edge of light, into the twilight zone, and have these shared experiences of exploration, of discovery, of documentation, of getting to know the creatures there, not to kill them, but to really Ask those questions. Who are you? <laughs> what are you doing here? How do you spend your days and nights? What's your role? And how can we understand the ocean better by immersing ourselves into that realm, armed with technologies that will enable us to see and understand and and better care for it? And this is an area that already has been designated and accepted as a hope spot. The concept of hope spots really is not a new idea. It's to do what many have been doing for the land for a much longer period of time, to identify places that you have some influence over that, that you can either protect because they're in pretty good shape, like national parks are on the land, or to restore to a better condition than they are when you start this initiative so throughout most of human history our numbers have been smaller (laughs) significantly smaller nature significantly more intact and so the idea that you had to proactively protect nature it just didn't seem necessary but starting early in the 20th century the idea for national parks protected areas because It was obvious we knew how to destroy them, but imagine actually taking care of them, not allowing them to be destroyed and and to protect species because we know how to kill them all. (laughs) But no, the ability to restrain ourselves, to be able to care for nature proactively, understanding that we have a choice. Many other creatures don't have a choice. We do. And we could kill every last whale. We know how to do that. We have come perilously close to actually doing that. And we have allowed thousands of species to slip away. Ed Wilson, one of my great heroes, and you've spoken affectionately of him as well, I attended his 80th birthday celebration in New York City. And he said one thing that really stuck with me that we're letting nature slip through our fingers. But not only do we have the ability to choose not to let nature slip through our fingers, we should be really careful that nature does not let us slip through hers. That's where we are right now. We need nature. It isn't just a nice thing to do. It isn't just a luxury to have national parks. It's not just because... Nations with wealth can say, oh, we can afford to have parks. No, we can't afford not to have areas where nature is safe. We just have to greatly increase that because our prosperity, our wealth, our health, our existence really depends on caring for nature. We've just only begun to wake up to our capacity to destroy to the point where we destroy ourselves or to flip it around and say, we have to really take care of nature on a much greater scale or we are going to lose our very ability to exist. So it's that concept of protecting nature that is relatively new in human society over all the time that we've been on the Earth. Really 20th century ethic of caring, giving back. And now about 15% of the land with a commitment globally to amp it up to at least 30% by 2030 and to extend that into the ocean. But we're lagging so far behind in the ocean. Only 3% of the ocean has the kind of protection that we accord to national parks where we really don't kill things. And the idea for Hope Spots that originated when I was awarded the TED Prize in 2009 and given a chance to make a wish big enough to change the world, to take that protected area on land, and protected areas in the sea, to heart at the time, 2009, (laughs) just a fraction of 1% of the ocean was highly or fully protected at that time. Not even 1%. Good news is, because people have begun to see the importance of caring for the ocean as well as for the land. Now about 3%, but with a goal of at least 30% by 2030. Hope spots give people, wherever they are on the planet, a chance to nominate places that they know and love and are willing to commit personally or as a community or in some cases as a country to say, yes, we're going to acknowledge that this place matters, and we're going to work toward getting to full protection. In most instances, the sixty areas that have been designated by individual champions, communities, institutions, working together to try to go from either, like the Galapagos Islands are pretty good shape, but with care they can be in better shape and not all of the ocean around the Galapagos has the same kind of care that 97% of the land in the Galapagos has, but they're increasing. And what we're doing with Mission Blue, the organization that really fosters the concept of Hope Spots, we're working with partners, Nature Conservancy, World Wildlife Fund, Conservation International, local organizations, national, international organizations. We've worked from the very beginning of the idea when the TED Wish was launched in 2009 to develop a network of hope with hope spots. We partnered right away with the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. I have a long history of working with IUCN. Now I'm a patron of IUCN, as well as working with dozens of other conservation and scientific organizations and companies with the ethic of caring. Rolex is one of those companies. National Geographic, both a nonprofit and a business, that together are really committed to exploration, research, conservation, education, and hope spots are really in the thick of of that.
0: I love the move that you did with the TED Prize because you know the thing about you get a genie bottle and you get three wishes? Mm -hmm. And When I was a kid, I thought I was very smart, but I think every kid did this. You know, the third wish, you're like, (laughs) I want 20 more wishes, and then you keep
1: going. Well, we have 160 Well, well,
0: what you did, right, with your, you know, make a wish big enough to change the world. Through your wish, you have created a mechanism by which other people get to wish. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. It's
1: contagious. Yeah. There are countries that it's almost like my protected area is bigger (laughs) than yours. (laughs) And some countries are really stepping up with going beyond 30% Mm -hmm. of the ocean under their jurisdiction, with protection. Not all of it is full protection, but with the concept that we're getting there. I mean, Panama is pretty close to getting to 50%. Chile has 40 And, you know, look around. Who's next? Why, why stop at 30%? It's a good start.
0: So I'm a 17-year-old listening to this in high school, or maybe I'm 40 years old and I'm between careers and I want to do something meaningful. More meaningful, perhaps, than what I've been doing. I can go online. I've looked at this before I came on this trip, so I can go online and I can look at a Hope Spot and I can either find a Hope Spot near me or if I'm living in some inland country, that might be harder. But I can find a place I identify with and probably give funding for that Hope Spot because there'll be a group on the ground Creating it, I can create a new one. How can I engage with this concept? Because one of the things we talk about and we hear about time and time again on this podcast is when you heal the earth, you heal yourself. And it is just that exchange of constant engagement that is one of the main purposes of life. And so beyond giving money and clicking a button, how could I engage in a hope spot? Um, How can it become a virtuous cycle whereby I get a better life, you know, achieve a better life by participating with this ecosystem?
1: When I get that question, whether it's from a kid or a a CEO, (laughs) whoever, you know, I have to say that I cannot tell you what you can do, but I can ask you, what have you got? Who are you? What have you got going for you? What do you care about? Do you have a way with words? Or do you have a way with numbers? Can you write a song? Can you sing a song? Do you play an instrument? Do you have a way with kids or with adults, with animals? What is it that makes you you? There's nobody else on the planet like you. Mr. Rogers used to say that to to kids. You're special. (laughs) So I say that to whoever you are. What are you going to do that you, alone in all of (laughs) history, because you're you, look in the mirror, figure it out, because you have power. You have the superpower of being whoever you are. Nobody else is like you. Use that power. And you're using it right now. You're communicating. What have you got? You have a way of figuring out how do you magnify your voice by magnifying the voice of others, me in this case, spreading the word, and it's magical. Really feeling your power and then putting it to purpose to make whatever it is around you better than otherwise would be but for your existence. And if you want to join in to use your power for helping this network of hope spots welcome aboard you know, it's uh, one of those places where the space is unlimited <laughs> we can use take on as many hearts and minds as we want to join the chorus it's it's an infinite orchestra that really the world needs voices the ocean needs your voice your compassion your whatever it is what have you got Put it to work.
0: Maybe what we'll do is we'll get our listeners to, um, we can collectively be adopted by a hope spot together <laughs> 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 and all we'll find our own ways of making a song or coming up with a intelligent business strategy to heal that one acupuncture point. It's the death of a thousand cuts, but I also think that it's a million brilliant points of light that heal it. Eight billion minds. Absolutely. Hearts and combined with the animal ones, too, who are doing their best. Sylvia, it is one of the greatest joys of my life to be sitting here with you. Thank you for coming on this trip with us. I think all of the people who are here are transformed by your presence, and you are an inspiration, a living inspiration, and there aren't many today. And women, may I add, um, for young women to also look up to. That was Sylvia Earle speaking to me from our rather cute seaside cabin in the Lofoten archipelago in Norway right after this recording we all went snorkeling with Sylvia and it was incredible to watch her wielding her underwater camera taking pictures of all of the underwater sea creatures and you know you would think after a lifetime of being under the oceans and watching some of the most magnificent and astounding and unimaginable creatures of the deep that she might be a little bit more jaded at, you know, taking pictures of a humble crab, but she was just snapping away. And I think there was a deep secret in there and uh, a lesson about what it takes to remain curious and active and passionate about the world. This mindset of constant unfurling and discovery that if every dive, no matter how many you've done, something new will appear. So. That's Sylvia. Now we move on to our conversation with Johan Rockström, whose two sons were also manning our expedition vessel called the Abel Tasman, teaching us how to hoist sails and pilot the seafaring sailboat into picturesque farming villages and bays. That boat, by the way, is available for more adventures, so reach out to me if you want to be connected. I caught up with Johan from his houseboat in Berlin after the expedition a few weeks after New York Climate Week and other large global climate gatherings. So he gives us a little bit of context on those gatherings, and then we return to the conversation on the ocean. Here is Johan.
2: September is always an intensive month with a gathering at the United Nations General Assembly and the New York Climate Week and the run-up to COP. But it's also even scientifically, for us who were deep, deep into all the assessments of risks and impacts and extreme events, quite a shocking number of days. Just yesterday, not only did we get unprecedented numbers on temperature rise in September, which is the warmest month ever recorded, even scientists across social media use words like absolutely shocking, mind boggling, deviation from anything they've seen before, we're suddenly so far outside of any extreme temperature rise that we should be expecting. It's so high, actually, that it cannot be so far at least understood properly. So we're talking about uh, you know, 1.8, 1.9 degrees Celsius of, of temperature deviations occurring suddenly, very abruptly. And of course, having spent time together in Lofoten, it will come as no surprise to you that there's only essentially one candidate to explain this, and that is the ocean. That's basically what's happening during an El Nino year uh, as the one we're in right now, combined with human-caused heat imbalance and the 90% heat, which is stocked and absorbed in the ocean, and that there is some form of unexpected release, which is a explaining this pulse. So since you and I met last time, I would say that it's been a, quite a tough month in terms of both engagements, but also in terms of recognizing that with even more evidence of, of the urgency. And just yesterday to close this, I sat in the session launching Pope Francis update on the Laudato Si. It was mm-hmm. 8 years ago Pope Francis wrote that this seminal piece of of the human dignity, and our need to um, take care of our common home, planet Earth. And uh, eight years later, Pope Francis uh, releases Laudato Deum and starts first sentence, we're not making progress, we're on a pathway to disaster, and this is all about human dignity. And um, my only statement in that session last night at the launch was, Pope Francis has full scientific backing for his statements, and this just shows the moral dimension of what we are putting at risk here for all of humanity. That was last night. So that's my feelings at this point. When when you and I meet today, so so yes, it's it's a challenging period, and uh, and we're actually within the Potsdam Institute wondering how how can we in the climate sciences what should we do, uh, how can we. Do even better in being a constructive bridge between our evidence and societal action, without becoming, uh, you know, advocates or lobbyists or or activists. But this is a challenging phase for everyone, but also for the scientific community.
0: It's a lot to hold, Johan, as you lay it on in this way. I did not know that the Pope releases Laudato Diem. I'm going to look into it because I think that the Laudato C. Si- is one of the most beautiful religious texts I've ever read. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, what do we do as climate scientists or as a society, but it, it, we're speaking very directly to a question of faith. And with that loss of faith in what can happen, I think um, we we must somehow maintain belief that we can do things. I There's a few places I'd like to go in the conversation. I think one of them is, when you're speaking about these cascading crises, some of the work that you've done along with the Global Commons Alliance has been to spread this idea of the commons um, in into society. And it was interesting, that moment of the planetary boundaries when you brought in the doughnut into it, which was the safe and just boundary. So you added mm. another dimension. Before we get into the like the technicalities of that, one of the things I really wanted to ask you today which may not be something that, that that you often speak about is even the thought of, okay, we need to bring in this notion of the commons. We need to bring in this notion of social boundaries. It seems that a lot of your work and and your your mindset, if you will, or your worldview has been to bring in lots of different strands that used to be scattered parts of the science and that you bring them together into a coherent framework. So, you know, you spoke about oceans earlier and, and heat, um, But what the what the boundaries has done and what you and your team have done is to see the interconnections between all of these different models that didn't exist before. So we spoke about this a little bit on the boat, but how come that you, as Johan, were able to perceive the world through the lens of these interconnections, these overlapping systems, and then bring them together? Like what was it in your in your worldview, in your education, in your life experience? that prepared you or kind of was the fertile ground by which you could start to create something like the boundaries and bring together climate and biodiversity and all the other geophysical boundaries. And I ask because it's not obvious, it's not easy. And if you think about the skills that people need to develop in the future to handle these problems, this is something we're going to need more of. So how did you, Johan, develop that in
2: yourself? Mm, That's a difficult question. And, And of course I should, admit that there are always um, some um, serendipity in, in in some of these steps but I, I had the privilege quite early to enter the whole Earth system science through a freshwater lens. So my kind of academic starting point is really in global hydrology and I worked with whom I would consider being one if not the leading, international global hydrologist, Professor Marlon Falkenmark, who uh, has developed the standard understanding of uh, water scarcity and how we measure water to keep the biosphere functioning, but also water to keep us humans alive and thriving. And uh, as you know, I mean, water is the bloodstream of the whole earth system. So if you, with that entry point, it wasn't so far-fetched to collide into the climate sciences, the, the cryosphere research, the oceanography. And and given that I then did my whole PhD research in systems ecology, uh, made it quite natural to come from the physical side on climate hydrology into the biological side of ecology and land and all the living dimensions on Earth. So one explanation is, of course, that I've had this... Um, privilege of working quite broadly across different disciplines. But then what really happened is that together with uh, Professor Karl Folke, uh, I established the Stockholm Resilience Center in, in 2007. And this was a result of a competitive scientific grant, but it's the largest, still largest, I think, environmental science grant ever given in Sweden. It was set up to establish a new internationally leading Interdisciplinary sustainability institution because they felt that we had for so long been doing environmental research across different isolated vertical disciplines and not being able to really, really cut across the broader interdisciplinary areas of, of social ecological research. And that gave birth to the Stockholm Resilience Center. And essentially, from day one of establishing the Stockholm Resilience Center, I felt that this was the moment, that this was the opportunity to convene scientists across disciplines. And I'm always very clear about this in all my lectures to my students. If it hadn't been the Stock Resilience Center and our group who proposed the Planet Boundary Science Framework, someone else would have done it because it was the next natural incremental step in scientific advancements. It, it followed exactly exactly how science advances. You know, you have an idea, uh, theory development, method development, and pieces of evidence advancing. And there were so many strands of science on the great acceleration, the tipping point science, all the work on the Holocene, the paleoclimatic evidence that the Holocene is this extraordinarily stable state of the Earth system. All the data that we started to gather on changes in ecosystems and ocean systems and ice sheets all of this coming together which kind of almost inevitably led to you know with all that evidence you must ask the question are we putting the planetary stability at risk and the obvious follow-up on that is of course can we quantify a stable range and there had been some attempts before the planetary boundary science you have the limits to growth work you have a the carrying capacity science, you have the ecological footprint network, you have uh, uh, the guardrail assessments. So, you know, this was like the next step. And I came in at the right moment to facilitate this. And I use the word facilitate deliberately because it was really about being a team leader among a very, very broad group of scholars. And it took us a long time. You know, it took us three years to get the first planetary boundary concept published because it it was such a big endeavor. And then it took us another seven year to do the, the first update and another seven year after that to do the second update. So we're talking big, big, big science efforts here.
0: What that leads me to, to reflect on Johan is the amount of epistemic humility that all of the people around the table needed to have their models integrated and challenged by what else was there in order to have that kind of transboundary, interdisciplinary science building. And going back to what you said in the beginning of your answer, I think it's poetic that your entry point into this was water, which is an element that takes the form of whatever it needs to become. Yeah. And it's sort of, you know, as a facilitator who entered via water, you also enable that, that shape and that space, mm. that emergent form of the teams to, to come together. And also water as the connective tissue between all of the earth systems showing how one thing can lead to another, it's, it's just interesting in sort of metaphysical way, if you will, how that connects. And we're also here talking about oceans today. And, you know, probably the reason why the temperatures are what they are right now is because of, of factors of the ocean. The second thing that that leads me to reflect on, which will be a question, is, you know, back then, it was the creation of this interdisciplinary institution that was necessary to create the science. And as you said, it was the next step in scientific advancement. From where you're sitting today, maybe it has to do with the commons aspect and the governance aspect or something entirely different. Do you feel like for the crisis that we're facing, we need even a whole new series of interdisciplinary institutions um, for the next series of advancements where we have even more people looking through each other's perspectives and trying to create new new synthesis and new ideas? Or do you think that we just need to double down on what we have currently? Because you also said in the beginning of the conversation, that this, you know, this is a this is a very poignant point in time. And what is your role as scientists to advance this in the in the most expedient way possible?
2: Mm, this is a really important question. And my view here is that we need to, you know, move along so many parallel strands simultaneously. And they're all important, but some of these strands are are slow. And, and science is, is a slow variable, but it's, it's like the floor we stand on. If we didn't have the, the Manoloa carbon dioxide curve that has been measured persistently since the 1950s, we would not have been able to stand so firmly on the proof that we are causing this deviation away from the levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere way outside of anything we've seen in, over the last 1 million years. We are finally at the next turning point on the state of the planet analysis. Why? Because we have machine learning and artificial intelligence and supercomputing power and earth observations at an unprecedented level of, of resolution and precision and frequency, which means that we can now, in a much, much better way, predict tipping points and also uh, get better precision on the safe boundaries, but of course also measure, do health checks. Uh, I mean, at, at New York Climate Week, we launched the Planetary Guardians Initiative. Sylvia Earle is now one of the Planetary Guardians, the spokespersons for for why we need to rapidly come back in within a safe operating space of planetary boundaries. But they will be served by science where we do an annual planetary health check. The planet is uh, is in bad shape. And and you then want to um, get the doctor to go through all the organs of your system much more frequently than we can today. Every seventh year is not acceptable. We need to come down mm-hmm. so we can really monitor the planet much more frequently. I don't think it's necessarily so that it needs many new institutions, but it definitely needs a new generation of, of Earth system analysts and and to work even more as a as a global community. And, and we're setting off on that work right now. I would argue it's an equal big step as when we started in 2009 on that kind of lighthouse uh, initiative. But that said, at the same time, we need to accelerate the fast uh, fast track. And and what is that? Well, that is about translating the science into science-based targets, operationalizing it with financial institutions, companies, cities, countries, to really start measuring everything we do against the planetary boundaries as an accounting system. Just as we account for the economy, we need to account for the natural capital in, in the planetary system. And, and we actually know how to do that. I mean, not with perfection, but we have at least enough methods and quantified targets to set off in that direction. And we need to put, put our feet on the accelerator on, on both of these, both on the science and on the monitoring in, in really operational terms. I had an exchange just this morning with uh, with actors who are really interested in getting the plenty boundary science into the financial sector as, as a guide for investments of, uh, of financial flows. And of course, that's that's the tap that that determines whether the money goes for coal fire plants or whether the money goes for solar voltaics in the end, or for nature-based solutions in agriculture, and, and we need to act on both um, really fast. All that said, let me just share with you also that, you know, sometimes when I sit on my bike um, cycling to the Institute here in Potsdam, it you know, you, you cannot avoid reflecting on the fact that companies have R&D departments that vastly, vastly outpace the size both in terms of euros and staff, compared to most of the scientific institutions on sustainability research. I mean, we're talking about the future of, of the entire planet and, and we can put billions, sometimes trillions, in, in consumer-based developments or research on, um, uh, on a nuclear fusion and putting just a fraction of that into uh, tipping point science and climate science and how to have a, a fair redistribution of the global carbon budget.
0: That's absolutely how I feel when I receive my newsletters about all the new startups in the world. And I'm like, a lot of these are <laughs> absolutely just don't make sense based on what's happening. Johan, one, one last question for you. I love this idea that you guys would be doing this annual health check of the planet and looking at all the organs and Again, I'm now looking at it through the frame of this podcast, which is also about a sort of psychological response to the crisis. And I'm sure you have experienced this in your life, where our psycho-spiritual de- development, our mentality, also deeply affects how our organs function, right? And you can look at that very physically in terms of stress and all of this. But something else I think happens in terms of what is the mindset that we're holding as we're doing the intervention, right? And what is it coming from? And That makes me think about like when you do this planetary health check, there's something about like the brain or like how we're thinking. And it goes back to your comment on the Pope's um, Laudato Diem, which is what is this deeper layer of of how we're thinking as we operate? And so something I want to ask you and, and an encouragement to the listeners is what is it that you care about? Like what are the emotions that you hold as you do your work? Why do you care? And maybe we can even bring it very concretely for this episode to the subject of the oceans. Like, what are the oceans for you? Why do you care beyond all of the rational calculations that we can make about the importance of the ocean and global carbon cycles? Like, why is this something worth caring about and, and worth protecting on a deeper level?
2: Mm, well, there's so many dimensions here, to be honest, Alex. I mean, at, at the very, very fundamental level Six o'clock this morning, I put on my wetsuit on my houseboat. It's pitch dark, and uh, I swim um, one thousand meters, and I just love it. I, to be honest, I, I, I get into the water, and I can promise you, I have my little uh, safety balloon following me, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm well visible if any boat comes. But it's a, it's almost a ritual for me. I just love the water. I'm a. I'm a passionate diver it's not a coincidence that I'm living on a houseboat here, and in Sweden we have a house on a little island in the archipelago. passionate sailors and uh, to have uh, the horizon seen across from where i 'm sitting is like the, the best harmony in my life at least so so that that's kind of one dimension to this. but the second dimension is really that I find it just so irresponsible for us, the adult generation on watch currently, just temporarily for a very short period of time, what right do we have to destroy the beauty and the functioning of the oceans? And, you know, when I was born and we had this wonderful little house in uh, archipelago further south in Sweden in a place called Hasselö, just outside of a little town called Vestavik, And with my brother, and some friends, we could take a boat out and, and spend the whole day fishing cod and um, bathing in an absolute uh, clean Baltic uh, seawater. And in my lifetime, I've seen this disappear in murky, eutrophied, anoxic waters with no more fish. And, um, and I look at my kids who have largely missed out just in one generation from the richness of the marine nature and i find this to be a, a moral responsibility we have no right to hand over to to the next generation a less livable planet than the one that i was myself born in and even though we're still sliding in the wrong direction i, I see that as a as my kind of a primary task here to, to do everything i can to to prevent that to continue sliding in the wrong direction so that that's kind of the, the second part but the third part I mean, don't, don't forget that I'm an academic and I enjoy being an academic. I mean, um, it's it's often forgotten that uh, we academics, we actually um, like writing. We like uh, the analytics. We like uh, mapping and understanding and, and answering unanswered questions and uh, being first with uh, with the new analysis of, of this or that. And it's very nerdy and, and can be very narrow, but it's... Uh, not that I wake up every morning uh, feeling bad about the planet and, and, and being in an awful, awful state. Absolutely not. I mean, I just like you, I'm, I'm just a human being and I, um, I like the work I'm doing. And I also do my work because it's a rewarding piece of work to learn more about the planet. And I think that is in itself um, something that, that keeps me going, so to say. So it's not only that I'm walking around with this dark cloud, always looking at an ocean that is moving in the wrong direction. It's also that we're trying to find solutions and that learning more is one path towards that solution. And I think we in the scientific community play one role where we're kind of contributing in that direction.
0: Johan, there's literally nothing else I could say that could be more exquisite than that three-part answer. So (laughs) what an encouraging call to action for people who are interested in being scientists and what it what that feeling might be like so thank you for that for that gift for the listeners as well enjoy the rest of your day thank you so much for coming on the podcast and um it's been just an honor to have you and we'll see you soon on the mountains
2: see you on the mountains and thanks thanks for inviting me
0: and now we will move on to the conversation with taylor griffith who is an underwater artist photographer and activist he's sylvia grandson and he uses his own techniques to continue this family calling of protecting the oceans and telling the stories that must be told. So you are an ocean storyteller, and that means that you speak on behalf of those who have no human tongue or voice with which to speak and tell their stories. What skills or aptitudes did you need to develop in your life in order to tell the stories of these creatures?
3: That's a very, very big question that I'll try and unpack. But as an ocean storyteller, you have to wear many hats. You have to look closely. You have to listen. Um, for those who don't have a voice, you still have communication. And I think that's one key aspects for the current state of ocean storytelling is communication and it's bridging that gap between human language and many human languages that we have and animal languages.
0: And then as a translator you're looking for stories or having them appear to you that you want to communicate to humans about the undersea worlds. What for you are some of the most important ocean communication stories? that are currently being told or that need to be told?
3: I think one, one of the stories, at least one that I'm working on, which is a long-form project, is around kelp forests. And kelp forests are these amazing algae forests that are all over the world. We have them right here in Lofoten, in Norway, where we've spent the past week uh, exploring some of them firsthand going down and touching the kelp, seeing the critters that live in the kelp. But kelp forests have a great, great potential for restoration efforts that can capture carbon in natural ways. They can provide life, and they do provide life, and nurseries for animals of all shapes and sizes. They're bioactive uh, miracles that exist in these near-shore ecosystems, and they regulate a lot of what happens on shore. Uh, primarily, I grew up diving in California kelp forests, and out there we have a lot of issues with urchin barrens, ocean warming, overfishing, apex predator loss. We had the Sunflower Star disappear entirely from the coastline. It was about 2012, 2013 with the starfish wasting disease, and that was one of the first changes I saw firsthand in an environment I grew up in and watching an ecosystem completely shift and change before your eyes. It's one of those things that really inspired me to go through this path. Documenting what was changing and figuring out how to communicate that and get that across to other humans.
0: So you want people to know about the kelp forest and the incredible benefits that they bring and that they are. What are some other stories that need to be spoken on behalf of the ocean?
3: I guess one more thing I'll say on the kelp forest is it is really something that can unite the world. Kelp forests and algae forests can be found on all seven continents. And they are in trouble across the world. Here in Lofoten, the areas we've been in, they look really amazing. And the algae is really healthy, but there's no fish, really. And that's something that we saw firsthand. It was just itty-bitty fish. There was one fish um, that was maybe over a foot long. That i saw which was really troubling to see that the algae is healthy but the ecosystem is not there's a big story to tell around ghost fishing and in one of the other hats i wear as a studio artist as like a contemporary art object maker i do a lot of work with ghost nets and ghost gear primarily pulled from the eastern pacific and bringing them into the studio to turn them into artworks that show in galleries. Uh, there's one that's in a museum in Jackson Hole right now. And those are large format cyanotypes, which is a photographic process. Um, it's actually how they used to make blueprints. And uh, it does have also a rich history in the algae world. Uh, Anna Atkins, who was the late 19th century citizen scientist botanist uh photographer who actually published the first photo book ever it was published by this woman who went out and collected algaes and made images of them and started collecting them into herbariums Um, and most people don't know that she is credited with making the first book of photography that was published but creatively the artworks are really meant to raise awareness That's why I work in a very large scale with them. I want the viewer to be standing in front of the work and feel immersed in it and understands that the sort of shifting nature of these gridded lines on the canvases that I work on presents a space where you can almost become entangled in the net. Mm. You get lost in the fields of the blue color and in contrast to the ghostly white image that's left behind on the canvas from the cyanotyping process.
0: Sort of like the the reverse empty space. I love that image. Um, and I'm going to put links to your gallery exhibitions in the show notes. Here's a bit of a curveball question. If you could choose one of the creatures or ecosystems that you've spent time documenting. Um, so choose one now. Maybe the first one that comes to your mind. What would you say speaking from its perspective? What would you tell me or tell people who are listening to this podcast from the perspective of that ecosystem, species, agglomeration place and tell us who you are. I would pick
3: the deep ocean because I think that's a space that a lot of people... I are... am
0: a space that...
3: Ah, oh, yes, I am a, speaking as the deep uh-huh, ocean.
0: yeah.
3: So speaking as <laughs> the deep ocean, I am a space that is becoming explored and under threat of heavy exploitation as well. I am a space that's full of life and not just a barren desert landscape. Uh, I am a space that lives in darkness and communicates through light and sound. I'm a space that needs to be protected. Outside of uh, perspective of being the deep ocean, I think that that is the next frontier in exploration in the ocean space. It has been explored for a number of years, but we're finally starting to understand what's happening down there. Um, So it really is a space that is older than time. Uh, And the concept of time down there works so differently to how we perceive time on land ecosystems down there are millions of years old. They are the old growth forests of the sea. They give life to the sea. They are uh, sort of one of our oldest spaces in the world that is relatively unharmed as of now. It is affected because of its remoteness. These spaces are so far off from land usually that they're relatively protected, but still under major, major threat of heavy exploitation uh, in the next year or two years. We really have a choice to make if we're going to protect these spaces or if we're going to lose these spaces, how we've lost so many others.
0: Here's something I've, I've come to understand over the last few years, that every breath we take, or at least second breath, um, the rain that feeds the crops that we eat, that nourishes the soil's Our lives are obviously inextricably woven with the ocean, and that ocean itself, its beating heart, its veins, its own organs are pumped by this deep ocean. And as you say, it is a terra incognita, it is an unknown space. We don't know what microbes affect the chemistry of the ocean from there. We don't know, I think, how... Thinly, our lives hang on a thread as a human species, right? We are enmeshed inside of these highly complex, I don't even want you to use the word processes because it's very technical, but these are feedback loops. Yeah, systems, it's just such technical language. It's, it's, It's organic and it's alive and it's sentient and it's beautiful. And I think that the language that we use sometimes doesn't give service to this. But we are part and parcel of how this deep ocean, dark space funnels life above ground and enables everything to be. And so the history of mankind has been to move into spaces that we don't yet understand and know, think we get it, pick apart the pieces until little by little it silently collapses. It's like the Jenga, now, when you pull out all the little blocks and it, mm-hmm. the tower kind of stands until it suddenly collapses because you pulled out the last straw or the last cube. Um, and this is ocean and this is forest and this is earth Um, but specifically today we're speaking about ocean and so for me as we've been learning over these last days and you and sylvia have been so astoundingly good at informing us for me this deep ocean is one of those last jenga blocks right that will just make the whole thing tumble down and we don't know at all how dramatically we might be affected so also as in these show notes, and I think parallel to this, we'll be advocating for more knowledge on this issue because mm-hmm. yeah, you know, again, back to the name of the show, Life Worlds. These are small, tiny, but magnificent. And some of them in these videos that we'll put in the notes, just crazy forms of life that I wouldn't even imagine existed.
3: You can't make the stuff up. No, it's, you
0: can't. Yeah.
3: To us it seems alien. Yeah. But yet it's a miracle. Yeah. Like every adaptation, everything you're mm-hmm. seeing down there has evolved over millions of years for a reason. Mm-hmm. And now it's part of our job to decipher what these reasons are for just the mind-bending shapes, textures, forms, colors that exist down there.
0: And invisible to us.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so if I can to, build yeah.
3: off your Jenga yeah, uh, go analogy real quick. yeah, I would say the deep ocean and sort of the crosshairs that it's in, if you have a Jenga tower, think of that bottom layer and you've already taken the two easy pieces off and you have that one middle piece left and that is the deep ocean. Mm. And if we decide to extract it, if we decide to pull out that middle piece, we are really risking the entire tower. You're sort of all in Mm. on it. So if you pull it and it most likely would collapse. There's very few people out there who could pull a single piece off the bottom like that and still have a tower standing. And I think that's about the odds of our planet being habitable for us if we mind the deep ocean.
0: So we've been speaking about climate communication and maybe the, the Jenga tower is not overused yet, I don't think, but it could be something interesting to weave into a very easy to understand video. Um, you corrected someone earlier this week They said what the ocean can do for us. Mm -hmm. And you, from across the room, I really picked up on this, said what the ocean can do with us or what we can do with the ocean. Yeah. Can you speak about that distinction between the for and the with?
3: Yeah, I think it's a perspective that we have. It is the different perspectives of natural resources being there for humans to use, resources that are there for us, rather than... Pieces of the natural world that we're using to enable life on Earth, and that's with us. We're working with the natural world to coexist on this planet, versus the natural world being there for us to use to exist. So I think those two distinctions—they're to most people—they may sound very similar, but it's two wholly, wholly different things. Um, and I think that that's a very important distinction to make. Because it's a shift in mindset that as we're moving through these decades, as we're going towards 2030, that's one of those big distinctions that needs to change in the public eye, but also very much on the policy side as well. All the policies, all the laws that are written now around natural resources, it is, even in its name, natural resources. They're resources to be used, to be exploited. One of the big things from this week, we've been talking about fish stocks and stocks meaning oh so it's there for us to use it's there for us to borrow against and we're sort of attempting to manage manage our stocks manage our portfolio of life on earth but at the same time you have mismanagement happening rampantly all over the world and when something is mismanaged it collapses and to continue this analogy the mismanagement of this portfolio would end with life on earth collapsing as we know it.
0: And as you say, stocks, portfolio, cool, it's a language that people will understand. For those out there who are connected to the oceans and want to be artists or communicators themselves, what resources, you know, from your part of the world, the part of the world that you know or otherwise, what can they study? Where can they go? What kind of courses can they take? Where are the inroads into having people serve on behalf of the oceans in the field that you're in?
3: It all starts in your own backyard and learning to observe the natural world that happens in your everyday life. Um, Seeing that nature around you and telling those stories, whether you've never done photography, you've never done some creative practice, uh, use that as your inspiration. And as you go deeper and deeper into that, you'll end up pulling back more and more and looking at how these systems are connected I think that's what's so amazing about what Johan was presenting on this week. He was really giving us the pulled back view of how these tipping points will cascade if we don't do something about them. So I think paying attention to what's going on, see what the scientists are saying, ocean storytelling, climate communication is the intersection of art and science. You have to wear two hats at the same time. Uh, You have to look closely, You have to talk with people, but also you can go and study art. You can go and study art and science. It's becoming much more accepted now in academia. If you're an artist who's interested in these issues, at least I've found that more and more people in that world are becoming accepting of it. More so in Europe than in the States. I have to say Europe seems to be really trailblazing its way on this. But it is starting to pick up momentum in the United States and all over the world as well. People are realizing that something is wrong. And I think that culture tends to follow art. And art is one of those universal languages that can cross borders, that can cross countries. It's the oldest form of communication that we still have today. From the cave paintings in Spain to shows at the MoMA and projections on the sides of buildings to murals to drawing in the sand and letting the waves wash it away. We are visual communicators. So tapping into that language, figuring out what tools you have to use and figuring out what areas you're passionate about and just take that and run as far as you can with it.
0: Taylor, I'll put links in the show notes as to where people can find you. It's been such a joy to spend these last few days with you and to watch your care as you photograph our group and correct us and look out and act also as kind of our moral compass here. So it's been such a pleasure and thank you for for coming on the show. That wraps today's three-part episode. There is so much to take away from these unique voices who speak on behalf of the planet and oceans. For me, one major turning point on this expedition was realizing that the greatest part of Earth's biosphere, that most of life on Earth, is in the deep trenches of the ocean, and that it's an ecosystem we know nothing about, and that it is the thing that enables us to live. I mean, how do we begin to hold that knowledge on a daily basis? As we travel in our cars to work, or sit at our desks, or stand in supermarket lines, I started thinking what it would look like to invoke the spirit of the deep ocean in our everyday surroundings to keep that knowledge and that awareness, I guess, of this hidden, invisible, profoundly mysterious world that is the reason we breathe. I think there is great potential here for artists and storytellers and a whole host of folks to embed the life structures of Earth into our collective and architected consciousness. I think there's also awareness to be held around the perils of the deep sea, of overfishing, of deep sea mining, of Arctic explorations that will begin to carve up this melting cap of the earth. So be informed, be aware, read the show notes. This is happening in our lifetimes and the information is there and the communities are there for you to join and advocate on behalf of. So there's work to do, my friends. I'm also taking away a great spirit of humility and of the sacred of these tiny little guys and vast processes that we are just beginning to understand. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and I will see you in a few weeks time where we will be talking about big data, AI, satellites, and a very spatial way I mean from a (laughs) space of understanding the world with Dan Hammer. That's it for me. Have a wonderful day.